0: If we can to get a sort of bird's eye view of the Christian position and of the non-Christian position. There are two kinds of people in the world. If you were judging by our pastor over here, you might think that those two kinds were Dutchmen and (laughs) non-Dutchmen. But that's not exactly accurate. They are Christians and non-Christians. Now, by Christians, I mean people who believe the Bible. Now I start with the Bible, and what not because this is a black book or a red book, that we just simply take the Mohammedans have their Bible, we have ours, and whatever is in these pages, we just, on mere authority, I'm using the word mere authority or sheer authority, except we do accept it on absolute authority, but we don't separate the book from the contents of the book. The contents of the book are, in the nature of the case, authoritative. God speaks in them, the triune God, through Jesus Christ, has revealed to us this interpretation of human life and its meaning to us. Now, if you're a Christian, that's what you believe. Now, there are lots of Christians who are inconsistent. We're all, of course, inconsistent in the sense that none of us live up intellectually or morally or spiritually to our own confession fully, surely. But what I mean is that there are non That there are Christians who are obviously, and flagrantly, openly inconsistent with what is the Christian religion, obviously. Now, I'm going to take the position to begin with, for the for the purpose of description, that we believe that what the Bible teaches about God, about man, and the world is absolutely true. Now, then, what does the Bible teach? Well, the Bible, first of all teaches that there is the Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, eternally self-sufficient, that this Triune God exists apart from the world, prior to the world, independently of the world, and that we therefore have to think of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We certainly cannot penetrate intellectually the mystery of the Trinity, but neither can we penetrate anything else intellectually, because all other things depend on the mystery of the Trinity, and therefore all other things have exactly as much mystery in them as does the Trinity. Now, we say that this God created the world. Now, that means the world is the creation and that he created man in his own image. Now, there's plenty of difficulty as to what we mean by the image of God in man, but in a general way, we mean, of course, that man is like God in that he knows God, that is to say, he knows independence upon God. Therefore, his knowledge is a dependent knowledge, a derivative knowledge. And what he says that he knows is a repetition on a created scale of what he has received by way of revelation of God in the world, in himself, and directly, supernaturally communication communicated to him in the beginning of time throughout all history and centrally in Christ. Now, that means that man is created and that he has then become a sinner. Now, that's the historic fall. I take this to be history. Karl Barth doesn't. He thinks it's ridiculous to believe in a historical Adam. I don't. I take that that's what the Bible teaches, whether you like it or not. Now, that's part of the Christian religion to me. Now, if that is the case, then, of course, ever since that beginning, we don't know just how soon that was at the beginning, but certainly very at the very beginning, then we have, after that, we find that people are human beings are all sinners. Now, there's Satan in the picture, of course, who tempted man to become a sinner, but Satan was himself originally a creature, and so you have, of course, the mysterious problem of how did sin get into the world and all of that. We'll we'll try to discuss that to as best we can. Now then, however, we have become sinners that are saved by Christ. God has sent his only son into the world as the second person of the Trinity who assumed human nature in this human nature suffered in our room instead as the Scotchman would say and rose again for our justification has made us the sons of God heirs with him of eternal life and joy and peace by the Holy Spirit by his spirit he enables us to accept this he regenerates us gives us faith so that we respond and respond in humility and obedience and devotion to him. Now then, we look forward to the redemption, final redemption of this world of ourselves, and we are to be restored fully to our relationships of prophets, priests, and kings under God to his eternal praise. Now that's the Christian religion. Now you say, well, that's certainly oversimplifying it. Of course it is, and I'm not interested in a lowest denominator form of Christianity in which Arminians, Calvinists, Roman Catholics, and all of them agree. There isn't any such thing. But I do have to state the the simplest things, the broadest things. In other words,
1: apologetically,
0: we're interested in the argument between the Christian and the non-Christian. And I know that when Khrushchev wants to take over this country, what he'll do with his atom bombs is he'll not try to get some little country house in North Dakota, but he'll flop them down in Philadelphia first, where I live, and then on Grand Rapids 2nd, where Mr. DeYoung lives, in Hendrickson, and in other words, he will take the big metropolitan areas. Well, now, the big metropolitan areas are the points of attacks, the Anknuch as Mr. DeYoung, with all his German learning, and Mr. Hendrickson on knopingspunt with all his Dutch learning, uh, they will make the attack, of course, on the big centers. Now, these are the big centers. The Trinity, creation, historic fall, redemption in history through the cross of Christ where Christ, the Son of God, died for us and rose again. He'll make his attack on that and he has done so and, of course, he will do so. Now, therefore... We take this position with full acceptance of responsibility, admitting it not only, but rejoicing in the fact that we accept this on authority, on absolute authority, and that we submit our intellects to this authority, that we make our intellects captive to the obedience of Christ. That is, we don't therefore start by a general approach and say, well now we'll is there a God or isn't there a God? And then that we study the facts of the universe and use the arguments for God, the ontological so-called or the teleological cosmological. But before we come to that, I must describe what is on the opposite side. Well, at the beginning of time, you know what happened. Here was God and here was man in this created universe, and God tested man by this means, but to indicate, that man might indicate whether he would completely self-consciously submit himself to the will of God and thus find his joy and his peace and his happiness in this obedience, love to his creator, and that he would accept this arrangement, this covenant that God makes for him and with him in order that he might respond receptively and rejoice in it. Well, then we know what the devil said to Adam first to Eve, there wasn't a man original enough to invent sin, it took a woman. And she got it from the devil. So then Satan said to the woman, do you think that it's well that you sub- should submit your spontaneous personality to an absolute authority? And now here is the, the tree, the tree of the love is good and of evil. I've made a lot of research on the nature of that tree and I've discovered that it was a persimmons. <laughs> that was after I had been in California a while and right next to the cottage where I live, you could put your hand out of the window and reach persimmons and they were very sweet to my taste. Ever since that time, this fruit has become a persimmons. First it was an apple when I was a boy. Well, now then, uh, God said to Adam and to Eve or Eve, Personality, be yourself, stand on your hind legs. That is to say, assert yourself. You are a person. And to be a person means to be independent, to be autonomous, a law to yourself. And surely, it's all right for babies, there weren't any then, but it's all right if you have children that they temporarily submit to parents and all of that. But for a mature person, he must make his own judgments. Well, so God said, do this and you shall live, do that and you shall die. But Satan said, no. How does God know? Satan said, nobody knows. God doesn't know. Why not? Well, because uh, this is just the beginning of experience. There are no records at Harvard or Yale or Chicago or anywhere else. No, no records yet as to what happens when you eat of this persimmons. Now, don't you see? if people have died a number of times after eating, then you can after that say, if you eat of it, you will die. But there haven't been any records. There are no records. How can anybody say that you eat of it and you'll die? First place, who knows what to die means anyway? But in the second place, and most basically is the point that nobody knows, nobody can know. Now I'd like to have particularly notice that that means the assumption of that position was that reality is not what God says it is. That is, It is what it is because God has made it thus and has ordained it such, the laws of nature, the laws of everything, but that reality exists there by chance. Now, that's irrationalist, if you want to call it that, or pure contingency, or pure uh, brute chance. Now that, got, that idea, of course, was brought into the world by Satan, insinuated into the heart of man, and then, of course, when man began to doubt whether what God, now God was, God, of course, was in a position to know. And Satan was not in a position to know. God was this big, he was that big, Satan was that big. Now, that isn't even a fair comparison, of course. It isn't a matter of size, but that's the best we can do. And how could Satan know what only God can know? God knew what he had put into this sermon. He has ordained it so that he who eats of this fruit shall die. That's his ordination. Satan says, well, let's find out. God does know. Now, that was, you see, to wipe out God as God, and to put him on a level, on a par with the creature, or you can put it the other way, is to put man and Satan on a par with God. It wants to wipe out, at one stroke, or attempt to wipe out, the creator-creature distinction. Now, that involved, therefore, the acceptance of pure irrationalism. Nobody knows. Now, however, you see that Adam and Eve were there for to choose between the devil Clever, have his hypothesis. He says, now, God has his hypothesis, too. He thinks that if you do this, you will die. I think if you will do this, you will live. Now, it hasn't been tested, so you're the one to test this thing. And now it's up to you to decide which hypothesis is the more reasonable. Now, don't you see, that was sounded as though the devil was introducing the mere scientific method to be open-minded. Well, that's just precisely what he was doing. He was getting man who shouldn't have been open-minded, who should have been closed-minded to the devil, and said what the perfect man Jesus later did say, Get thee behind me, devil. What do you know about it? Only God knows, and you couldn't possibly know. Certainly when you contradict God, you are dead wrong. Why... The sin of man comes in by this doubt whether this word of Satan and God's word could be put on a par, the one a hypothesis and other two, and hypothesis the two opposed to one another. Now that is, of course, to introduce the idea of neutrality between God and man. Neutrality is from the devil. So is doubt. Doubt of God's word originally, doubt now of the scriptures, which is the same word of God, in effect later given, of course, is also that same satanically inspired attitude which no human being has a right to have. Now, however, I must particularly stress the fact irrationalism came into the world, but at the same time, in the same stroke, rationalism also came into the world, and they've always gone hand in hand as man and wife. That is to say you never have the one without the other because man actually accepted what the devil said as over against what God said. Therefore, he took his chances, so to speak, with saying that the devil was right and that God, who was alone, able to know what was right, was wrong. Well, that was to say, God, you do not know. Well, on what basis could he say that, except on the basis that he thought he did know? That is to say that he could penetrate reality to such an extent that he knew that what God said about it could not be true. It cannot be true. I said last night about Sartre, the modern French philosopher, that he says on the one hand that he's utterly irrationalist, that he's free, so free that nothing can exist in the way of a nature of God or of the world or of man that can dictate anything to him, so he must be so free to be start from scratch each moment of his existence And at the same time, he's an utter rationalist when he says God cannot exist. Now, that's precisely the position that Satan insinuated into the heart of Adam and Eve at the beginning of time. Now, there we have at once an insight, don't you see, into the natural man and what he's he's after, what his attempting to do, he is still attempting and he has attempted throughout the whole course of history, to follow the devil's lead. He's, in the first place, he has declared his autonomy, which means, of course, that he is a law to himself and will not recognize God as his lawgiver. He is autonomous. He's a personality that he thinks has a right to assert for himself what he will or will not be And then, as such, he is an irrationalist, utterly utter irrationalist, which means that he assumes the brute factuality and the mute factuality of the universe, of himself included, that nobody knows, that he doesn't maybe himself know, and that he is at the same time a rationalist, that he is sure that God doesn't know, and that the Bible is not true. Now, this, I think, helps us to understand the method of apologetics, the method of the presentation of the Christian religion. We Christians ought simply to say that we have been saved by grace that God has reached down into this mass of corruption, into this morass, into this cavern of iniquity in which we, had, which we have been dropped. Now, we read Romans 5.12, of course, that we all have sinned in Adam, and it's not the only passage of Scripture, of course, that teaches this. The whole teaching of Scripture is that Adam represents us, that represented us, that therefore we come into the world now with that attitude. That's what we mean by total depravity, that man is in the depth of his being, the heart of man is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked and that he now attempts, therefore, to be autonomous. Now then, when God, in his condescending grace, sends his only begotten Son, and Jesus, in his great unspeakable love, gives himself on the cross, and when the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, inspires his word, and then this gospel is presented to this natural man, what does he do about it? Well, he reacts to it, with complete negation of himself. The natural man receiveth not, we are told by Paul, the things of the Spirit. They are spirit discerned. By the Holy Spirit alone can you discern them. If you are born again, you will discern them, but not unless you are. Faith comes to be sure from hearing the gospel preached, but the gospel preaching itself must have added to it this act of regeneration of the Spirit. Now, that's what Paul says about this natural man. Now, you would think the situation, then, is hopeless as far as apologetics is concerned. If I say that the natural man can't of himself receive, it, then what's the use of talking to him? What's the use of my going over to St. Michael's Cemetery as I did yesterday? Pretty bad shape. Things are over there. Well, not any worse than they are in the world as a whole with respect to every man in this world. They are dead in trespasses and sins, not sick, but dead, and you don't go over a cemetery with a wagon and say, Jump on, and I've got a million dollars in the bank for you. If only you'll jump on, nobody does, and you know it in advance that nobody will. And so is it any use to speak to dead people? Well there is. Jesus dead. He said, Lazarus, I say unto thee, arise. Now Lazarus was dead. But he wasn't a cow, he was a human being, he was, had been made in the image of God, and Christ was not a man, but was God as well as man, and so he had the power, and he used the power to give Lazarus the, an ability to accept, to respond, to rise from the tomb. Now God, by his grace, gives men, by his grace, by his sovereign disposition, he gives men the power to respond. Now, we know he does that. And that he uses preaching and reasoning. Now, reasoning is precisely the same thing as preaching. It's not different, essentially. That is to say, we don't use apologetics as a means of reasoning people into the kingdom and preaching for some other purpose, to establish them. But we use the same thing. Reasoning is preaching. We say to these people, that which Paul said to them, Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that the world by its wisdom knew not God had pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, here's where the Roman Catholic, I think, makes his basic mistake. And where much protestant apologetics has followed the Roman Catholic lead and still makes its basic mistake, and where much present-day fundamentalist apologetics makes the same mistake. And I think we ought to try to really be true to the Bible in our apologetics as well as in our exegesis and systematics. Now, what does the Roman Catholic do? Well, the Roman Catholic, of course, does not believe that the natural man has no ability to accept the truth. He believes that man is not totally depraved and that therefore, though he may be very bad at certain points, he still has the ability to accept the truth when he sees it and wherever he sees it, that he's willing to follow the facts wheresoever they may lead him. And so he goes over Greek philosophy. Thomas Aquinas, the great Roman Catholic teacher, as you know, wrote one great work on systematic and another great work on apologetics and the Roman Catholic the policy has followed this. Namely, that you can say, look, here were the Greeks. Here was Thales. He said all is water. Now that's uh, a bit materialistic to say that God is water. Let's not have Thales. And Alexander said, all is apharon. That is to say indefinite. Let's not follow the next in, uh, an axiomander in an he said, all is air. Heraclitus said, all is flux. Parmenides said, all is static. Plato started to introduce some sort of distinction, but with Aristotle. We're getting closer to home in the nature. so that Aristotle says, back of all the facts of the universe, all the co- one thing causing the other, there must be an ultimate cause which is the final cause which cause we can call God so that we can say prove that God caused the world to exist now Aristotle says to be I mean Thomas says look we can therefore using the method of Aristotle establish the truth of theism that is the existence of God and we can prove that pantheism isn't right and that deism isn't right but that Theism is right. Now, we haven't even come in sight of the Bible. We haven't used the Bible. We haven't appealed to authority. We're only appealing to reason, to the natural man's own ability of himself to come to right conclusions about the things in this world and what is back of this world. Now, he can't, by this approach, says Thomas, uh, come to Christianity. That has to be placed on top of this foundation from the top, uh, from above. Christianity deals with mysteries, with miracles, with salvation, with redemption. Therefore, that has to be revealed. But reason can build the first story and accomplish it. Now, the Roman Catholic position is this combination of the first story built by reason. And then dropped on the top of that is the question is the teaching of the Bible or of redemption and of the church, which is added to it as a second position. Now, the first thing I would say, and then let me go on from there, to point out that this position of the Roman Catholics has been introduced into Protestant circles, particularly by Bishop Butler. And he wrote a book on the analogy of the relation of nature to redemption. His argument was like this. He was trying to deal to the theists and to point out to them that they must no longer be deists, that is a God believe in a God afar of off and not now actively controlling the universe, but that you must believe in theism, a God who creates the universe and is providentially controlling it and is interested in it and directing its course. Now Butler says, look, we have we Christians and non-Christians have the constitution and course of nature in common. We look at the facts, and we're all empiricists. We say we see order in these facts, and we see that there is a continuation here. There's also difference. Here's a baby, here's the old gray here. Now, when you see a baby picture, if you saw my baby picture, for instance, you would think it looked quite different than you would see. You, would, you wouldn't have ever believed that I could become so ugly. Now, uh, but there is still identity. Don't you see? But there's difference, identity. Now comes death, he says. Now that's quite a difference. Uh, here you see differences, differences, but then maybe you could even say there's continuity, and so you establish the general idea of the probability of immortality of the life hereafter. Similarly, you see, in nature, you see a certain measure of atonement. Here's the mother hen. It sits on its little chicks, and when lightning strikes, fire comes, it'll allow itself to be burned off, and the little chicks are saved. It gives its life, the mother hen, for the children, her children. That's substitutionary atonement. Now, don't you see, Christianity has more and better and bigger substitutionary atonement but it's the same kind that you can that everybody can see operating in nature. Unfortunately, C.S. Lewis, who writes a book on miracles, argues in precisely that way. He says, uh, look, you can see free will in nature because I can throw out this piece of chalk. You see, the laws of nature are gravity pulls it down, but by a force of will, I can counteract that law. Now, that's free will. It makes little orifices, little holes, in the laws of nature. Now, miracles, by miracles, God, with a bigger will, stronger power, he can make miracles. Now, that's, unfortunately, C.S. Lewis's approach to Christianity and to miracles and to its defense, which I say is highly unfortunate. That's a brilliant man like C.S. Lewis should follow Bishop Butler in this respect. Now, it's good for, our, for Arminian people to do this. If you are Arminian, that's the kind of method that you should approach. That's consistent, then, with your theology. If you're Arminian in your theology, that means that you haven't been willing to accept the Bible teaching that man is created and therefore really in every sense dependent. How can a creature pretend to have ultimate power? It doesn't make any sense. You either have a creature and then he has no ultimate power. He has power, he has will, but it's always derivative. But the Roman Catholic, you see, believes, to a certain extent, in ultimate power. Man has ability that hasn't derived from God. It's the same kind of ability that God has, namely creation, ability to move things in the absolutely original sense. Now, Arminianism is just like Roman Catholicism, only it isn't as bad, of course, in many ways, but it essentially still has the same disease of naturalism, namely that the will of man is said to be independent of God to some extent. Now, if that's the kind of theology you have, then by all means you you should also follow this bad method of apologetics. Now, I hope there aren't any such people as Armenians here, but if there are... Then I advise you to be consistent and be an Armenian all the way down the line, and then you'll go down the drain with the Armenian and Roman Roman Catholic position, it is then you finally have the leg to stand on in order to really present the Christian religion. But if you are Calvinist, then of course you should reject this whole Roman Catholic position, this butler position. And then you should simply say, look, this, I have not been able to establish the existence of God by the method of Aristotle or any other because I know the kind of God that I get when by that method is a finite deity and finite gods are no gods. They are creatures of my imagination and that's no God at all. Now, we'll start from this point tomorrow and then go on to see what, it seems to me, is a more biblical approach, shall we pray. Where are the wise? Where are the scribes? Where are the disputers of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, who rules all things, the world that is unbelieved by its wisdom, knows not God, the true God. It pleased God through the foolishness of preaching, through the message that Paul brought to them, to save those that believe. Now that seems to me to be the biblical method of approaching unbelievers in order to win them to Christ. Unfortunately, there has developed in the history of the Christian Church a quite different method, which was developed by Roman Catholics, particularly by Thomas Aquinas, and we'll speak of that method this morning, in order to contrast, compare it with what seems to me to be a more biblical method. Now, in order to explain what is meant by this Roman Catholic method, which is also the Armenian method because it was introduced into Protestantism by Bishop Butler and has been taken over from Bishop Butler's book on analogy of the religion, Christian religion, into, by many other peoples, even down to our own day, It is, in the nature of the case, the method that fits with Arminianism, that fits with Romanism, because both Romanism and Arminianism believe, to an extent at least, Arminianism much less than Romanism, in the free will of man in the sense of human autonomy, ability to initiate absolutely that which is independent of God's plan and counsel. Now, that method I'm calling the traditional method because it was developed traditionally by the Roman Catholic and Protestant position, the Armenian position. Unfortunately, also, this same method got into reform circles, and so I can't say that we good reformed or Presbyterian people have our skirts clear of this sort of thing, and we mustn't pretend to be better than our others but we do do have to have the responsibility of seeking out a more biblical and truly effective method of presenting the gospel. Now, the the traditional method usually appeals to Acts 17. You remember that passage where Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Another translation, as you know, has it religious. Dezidemonesteros. What does it mean, this Greek passage, which is at the basis of this translation, superstitious or religious? Well, I would say it would mean something like this. I come to Pensacola, and I see Presbyterian, and I met Missouri Senate people in the hotel this morning, and there's a Missouri... I said, where are you having your meetings? Emmanuel Lutheran, where are you having your meetings? Oh, well, I said, of course, in McElwain, Presbyterian. I says, I'm a Calvinist. Oh, horror of horrors, he said. Uh, A Calvinist, where did you ever see such a thing or hear of such a thing? Well, we did it jokingly, and we were good terms, and we tried to get a cup of coffee together, and only the cafeteria was closed. Now, the point being, of course, that today these differences do not mean much to people, but they did mean a lot, of course, historically. And the Roman Catholic position is the position that the natural man is not totally depraved, that he has the ability to interpret the world rightly, correctly, so far as, he go, as reason can reach, and that he only needs additional information for the top story. He can build the first story of the house by reason, and then the second story, or maybe the third, is put upon the first story from above. Now, they make their appeal frequently to this passage. Ye men of Athens, I see that you're altogether religious or superstitious. I would say it means your town is full of religious institutions. Here are the Methodists, there are the Presbyterians, there are the Lutherans, and so forth. Now he says, where does that come from? I passed by, he says, I drove down the streets with my new car, and I beheld the different devotions. And I found an altar with this inscription: "Agnostoi Theoi," the unknown God. Now he says uh, there are a lot of them here, but apparently there are a lot more coming. That is to say, the religious question hasn't been solved, and there are a lot of people that are not satisfied with Presbyterianism with Lutheranism. They have built an altar to an unknown God. Presbyterians claim to know something. Lutherans claim to know something. Methodists, but. We know that nobody knows. And consequently, we build an altar to that holy other God, that unknown. And he strictly means the unknowable. That of which, in the nature of the case, nothing can be known. Now, that's the meaning of agnoistoi theoi, historically. The unknown, not only, but the unknowable. Now, there's a great deal said today about the unknownness or unknowableness of God. Otto's book, The Holy, Karl Barth's whole theology is based on this unknowability of God. So so is that of many others. So this has a contemporary interest. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now, what does that mean? Does Paul say, I'm attaching myself to your idea of an unknowable God? Nothing of the sort. Certainly does Paul mean. He means, I am preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's what he's been doing. That's what he said he was going to do and the only thing he was going to do. And certainly by that he did not mean that God is unknowable because in Jesus God is known. Not exhaustively known, not that you can intellectually penetrate to the utmost depths, the inner being of God, but God is truly known in the way that God wants to be known and so far as he wants to be known in the revelation that he has given of himself, the triune God in Jesus, and in the revelation that he has given us through the apostles in the scriptures. Now, him I declare to you. He can only be declared. That is, he can't be searched out from the bottom up. That is, by starting the way you Greeks have been doing, searching out this fact and that fact, relating them together, making unity out of them, building a hole, so to speak, and then reaching up into the clouds, that results always in the impossibility of reaching any sort of God. Or if you reach a God that way, it's a fine idea. It's not the God who is so definitely God that he can't but be met everywhere that you face. Because Paul everywhere else and the whole Bible says that the whole creation of course reveals God. The revelation of God in nature and in history leaves man without excuse that proves that God is not unknown or unknowable, but that he's so completely, unavoidably known by everybody that nobody can know himself without knowing God. That's what Calvin in the first page of his Institute starts from. I know myself because I know myself as a creature of God, as the sinner before God, as saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ. Then I know myself, and otherwise... I do not know myself. Now, Paul, in the first letter, in Romans, says, to stunt on. That is, knowing God, they have not held him, kept him in remembrance. He doesn't start from that same idea of the unknown and unknowable God and then says something anyway, in spite of the fact that nothing can be known of him, about that God. That's the way modern theology does. That's not the way Paul does. He says... All men know God. They were all made in the image of God. They have indelibly fixed upon their imprinted on their being the knowledge of God. Calvin puts it this way so to speak. They have the knowledge of God in fixus in That means fixed in their bowels. No more than you can walk around without your bowels. No more can any man walk around without knowing that he's a creature of God. And if he knows that then he also knows that he has sinned against God because he knows perfectly well that he is not obedient to the commands of God. He's dishonest, he's this this and this that. He's certainly far from living up to even that knowledge which he has of God. Now, Paul, therefore, by saying that he is preaching to them the unknown God, is not saying that he's attaching onto the idea of God that they already have made in order to build upon it and go further. Now that is nonetheless the, con- the attempt that is made by the Roman Catholics, whom ye ignorantly worship, that is, you worship, in spite of the fact that all these institutions and these churches that you have, you know that there's something beyond that, but you're ignorant of it, and therefore you worship that which doesn't exist. You worship an emptiness, and therefore worship to you and for you is meaningless And it's worse than meaningless, because the wrath of God rests upon all those that do not accept and receive and respond properly to the revelation of God that they have. Now, God that hath made the world and all things therein, seeing he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Now, what is he after? Paul isn't just simply after idolatry in the obvious public, in the sense of public worship of idols of wood and stone, but he's also after the thought of the Greeks. Paul was well-versed in the thinking of the Greeks. Now, what was this thinking? Well, he, as it were, surveys it. Where are the wise? Where are the scribes? Where are the disputers? Well, what was he thinking of? Well... We can just only hastily mention some of the things. Bailey said, all is water. We saw yesterday that what the natural man does is to wipe out the creator and that he has left nothing but himself to make himself the reference point of all his speech, of all his activities, of his moral, his religious, as well as his intellectual activities. Man is the center of it. Man is autonomous
1: which means that
0: the world around him is composed of brute, mute facts, pure chance, utter contingency, unrelatedness. Now, that's what was introduced by Satan into the minds of man in paradise, when he said that the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He says, well, that's God's hypothesis. My hypothesis is the opposite, and you must be neutral and open-minded and decide. That's the prerogative of human personality to stand up on its own feet and determine for itself. Now, that was the introduction, as we saw, of pure irrationalism. Now, by that I mean this very thing that the Greeks were standing for, that there is an unknowableness about ultimate being, that man cannot know it, and that therefore, strictly speaking, there cannot be in this world, rightfully, one religion that claims to be true over against others that are false. Don't you see? It excludes the possibility of the Christian religion. So far as creator, creature distinction is concerned. Now, with that, we saw also goes rationalism, that is, this same man who says that nobody can know, says, but you are wrong. There are three things that is said by the natural man nobody knows. Well, if that's the case, then, of course, suppose... You might think he doesn't claim to know either. But the second point is, but you are wrong. Now, that's involved in this rationalism. I know that you can't, that God cannot be right about what he says as to the results of this eating of this persimmons. And consequently, I am taking your hypothesis, your satanic majesty. I'll follow your advice. I think yours is more to my taste. Now, that means that he's doing, what Sot, as I pointed out, is now doing, and many others with him, first say that I'm a speck of chance like a white cap on a wave in an ocean. I'm only different from the blue water that surrounds me because I've been churned up a little more, and pretty soon when the storm subsides, I subside into the blueness of the blue and disappear with it as an individual. Now that's irrationalism. At the same time, Saad says, God cannot exist. He makes a universal negative proposition about all reality. Now, how can a man do both? Now, that's the foolishness to which the natural man has gone. Now, here it starts. These people are not innocent people. They are good people, decent suburbanites. They don't murder and kill people. They don't get drunk, necessarily. But they are those who are supposedly looking for the truth and so they want one principle. There have been polytheism and so they now look for one principle. Where do they look for it? In this way they combine God and the world into one and they make one statement about the whole thing. Whatever they say it's always all is this. All is water. All is air. All is that. Now That means that in the first beginning of Greek philosophy, there is what we may call monism, by which I mean the wiping out of the creator-creature distinction, or the enveloping of God and man and the world in one principle. Now that notion is therefore the basic to everything else. Monism is not just one movement among other movements, but it is characteristic of all non-Christian approach to human life and thinking. Now, Anaximander, the, the second one, said, well, you can't reduce fire and earth and air to water very well. So he says, nobody knows, really. And therefore, reality is indeterminate, he said. Now, you see, that's the irrationalism that the devil insinuated into the mind of Eve and Adam. Nobody knows because reality is on indeterminate. Nobody knows, can ever know. Now that is, you see, actually to assert that you do know what reality is and that you do know that it is utterly indeterminate and that therefore no determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God can settle the issues of life and of death, that the God of Christianity cannot exist. Now who knows enough to know that there is not a judgment coming? Who, who can say that in advance if you pretend to be open-minded, following the facts, making no pronouncements about them before they're here, or only probable statements, then, of course, you must make these universal negations about all future possibility. Now, that's what Anaximander says. First is, all is water. Uh, and he says, all is, is on." And then all is air. By Anaximenes. I'm not interested in these names now. I just want to show you the development of Greek thought and why Paul said what he said about it at the end of it, when Paul knew this story, as he did. Paul is air. Now, what's the difference between air and water?